welcome to Of Dust and Divinity, an ongoing conversation with makers, thinkers, and doers, where we ask big questions of the small things. He found out what was wrong with me. He said, we're going to, now we're going to fix you. So, you know, a lot of times doctors just give you the easiest answer that they can possibly think of and so that they can give you the diagnosis and you write your check and you're on your way. But he not only wanted to find out what was wrong with me and actually what's wrong with me, not just the theory, but he wanted to fix me. So it's very rare to find doctors like that. But he's somewhere, like I mentioned, somewhere in between Western medicine and homeopathic. He's going to do what's right for your body. I am so excited about today's episode, and I can't wait for you to meet our guests. They are fantastic, and the conversation only gets better. Hi there, I'm Ariel. I work for a financial technology company as a success coach in Atlanta, Georgia. I'm the youngest of four girls, and I'm the proud aunt of two really incredible kids. I identify as a white woman with a Lebanese and German background, and I'm hanging on right now to my 20s for two more years. I have a BA in sociology and communications and was fortunate enough to grow up in a culturally diverse home. I identify myself as a follower of Jesus and uh, strive to live in Christ-likeness. If I could clone myself, my clone would probably pursue a career in epidemiology. Hi, my name is Jesse Lucas, and I'm from California, currently working in entertainment finance on Saturday morning cartoons. I'm a maker, nurturer, ally, quarantine gardener, and a collector of friends. I have a degree in religious studies from University of the Pacific and currently identify as a Christian agnostic. If I could clone myself, I would pursue cognitive psychology to help find a cure to mental illnesses. And I'm your host, Caben Kramer. I'm a fourth-generation California farmer, farming walnuts on fertile concow land along the edge of the Feather River. I'm a husband and a father to two awesome kids, and I identify as a white male, and I'm loving my 30s. Formerly, I'm educated as an engineer, though I've never actually practiced engineering as a profession. I identify as a follower of Jesus and find the teachings and lifestyle of Jesus attractive. If I could clone myself and do two occupations, my clone would probably be a cultural anthropologist. Well, if you've been listening to this podcast for any amount of time, you know that at this point I usually cast the vision for how this is just a group of people sitting in the back corner of their favorite pub having a conversation together, and I play a snippet from a previous episode. Well, we got so into this conversation so early on that we never actually got around to the original prompts that I'd emailed out to the guests. So we're just going to roll this conversation. It's a great time in this episode. We talk about uh, what it means to work in the uh, Hollywood industry. We talk about the wrestle for good medical care with chronic diseases. We talk about what it is like to teach people technology. So there's all kinds of great stuff we get into. Um, and then, of course, part two is coming out on Thursday which is also fantastic. And we'll talk more about that at the end of the episode. So stick around all the way to the end um, because you might not know this, but there's actually a poem read at the end of every episode. So stick around to the very end to get all of that great information. And without further ado, here's our conversation with Jesse and Ariel. Okay, so now I want to go back to it because there was something you said, Jesse, that I'm really interested in. Oh, Saturday morning cartoons. Jesse, can you tell us more about what it's like to work 
in Saturday morning cartoons. I think that might be how you said it. What does that mean to you? And what's that like? I'm so curious. Yeah, absolutely. So growing up in the late 80s and 90s, Saturday morning cartoons were a really big part of Saturdays, right? I would wake up and I I would, well, I, I grew up first in, in Italy, so I had Italian cartoons that helped me learn the language. Um, but coming back to California, um, it was just part of our ritual on Saturdays to just wake up and watch some cartoons before, you know, jumping into chores or homework or whatever it was. So I like to refer to working in animation as working on Saturday morning cartoons because a lot of people uh, of my generation <laughs> know know what that's kind of like to be able to, you know, look forward to a show of animation. So it is 2D animated. I don't work on features, which tend now to be, you know, 3D and CG and all that stuff. So for me, Saturday morning cartoons were always 2D. So that's why, that's another reason I like to refer to it like that. And um, I don't personally do any animation. I have a lot of friends who are in animation, mostly doing features. Um, but the art of 2D is so precious to me. It's so dear to me that even just being in the industry is really cool because it's such a, such a niche of the entertainment. So um, fun. Yeah, it it really is actually. I mean, you'd think obviously it would be fun, but it it's not always fun working at a studio. I just happen to have locked out with a really great community because yeah. sometimes you can get really, you know, blah um, yeah. environments, but I really did lock out. I love hearing that. That's a really, I, I, I would love to hear if you're interested, of course, in telling um how you got, like how that you got there because that's something that people fight for you know oh man my story is so dumb (laughs) I can't imagine it is it's it's one of those things that just I so I used to date this guy um who was in Christian film and he was a producer and we dated for a long time honestly we should have just been working together because we worked really well together and we shouldn't (laughs) have dated at all but um he went from Christian film producing to um, accounting and I assisted him on the movies that he did and then when we parted ways I just kept getting accounting jobs I'm not very good at accounting but I'm good (laughs) at learning and I'm good at applying what I learn so one day I got an interview for MasterChef and MasterChef Junior fine very little experience but I got the job and I, whenever someone says, why are you qualified for this position? I honestly have to respond. I'm not qualified for this position, but I, I know I can work with you. And I know that if you're willing to teach me, I can do this job. Exactly. Every time I have gotten the job and they've always been better in better positions. And that's just kind of how I did it. Like I never had aspirations to be in the film industry at all. I love people. I am terrible at math, but I love people and I love learning <laughs> And I love challenges. I'm naturally a very creative, artistic person. So yeah. I thought, I'm going to pursue this dumb accounting thing to challenge myself. And girl, it has been the biggest challenge of my life. Oh, I it can is, imagine. It is such a challenge. But along the way, I've learned so much about money. It's been amazing. It's been fantastic. It. I never thought in a million years that I would ever be where I'm at right now. Never. Thank you.
Well, and, and Ariel, I, if, if you're willing, I would love to hear more about, you know, cause you've, you've been more vocal about the fight for Lyme disease and some of the complications of what it means to be living with Lyme disease. Would you mind sharing some of that story here? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the big question mark is when I got it. <laughs> we have theories. Um, uh, interestingly enough, my sister above me has Lyme. Um, and this, uh, well, here, let me back up. Lyme is an umbrella, as I like to say. And the thing about Lyme is it's so hard to diagnose because there are about 24 co-infections. And I like to look at co-infections as chemicals. If you're in a chemistry lab, and you mix chemical A with chemical B, you're going to get a reaction. Chemical A with chemical C, you'll get a totally different reaction. What about A, B, and C? A totally different third reaction. So imagine that with all these 24 different chemicals. And so it's really hard to diagnose because each chemical or, or co-infection will give you a different combination or, or different just reaction or just um, of, 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 of excuse me, I'm trying to find the word symptoms. And so I have had all these bizarre symptoms basically my entire life. We think we, I probably got Lyme when I was six at a petting zoo. I broke out in hives. We thought it was a lanolin. I've been around sheep since then. I love petting zoos. Um, so I, I haven't gotten that reaction uh, since then. And also, um, my, like I mentioned, my sister has it. So, you know, with my sister having it, and she has the same co-infections as me. In fact, she actually has a little bit more, but she horseback rode a lot growing up. Um, you know, there's a big question mark there. My mom was diagnosed with Lyme, but she doesn't have any issues. I've been in and out of the hospital pretty much my whole life. Like my longest day, don't, don't let me misguide you, mislead you. I, my longest day was two nights slash three days. Um, but I've had hospital visits. Um, so everything from uh, stomach and gut issues to severe brain fog, I mean, I was, I would sleep th for 30 hours straight, go up to go to the bathroom or something, grab something to eat and go straight back to bed. And I was really sick. I became septic at one point and my doctor was pretty scared. She said, I, you know, I was actually in college at the time and my mom pulled me out. I actually had to medically withdraw from my first school at University of South Carolina because my doctor said, get her out of there. She's dying. Um, we think I was septic at that time. And um, so I finished up school in Atlanta at a small liberal arts school so it could be near doctors, but I didn't get diagnosed until I was 26, so um, two years ago. And so 20 plus years without diagnosis and doctors telling me it was all in my head, you know, and that, that was the most frustrating part because that made you, made me start wondering, is it all in my head? Am I just making up that I have all these health issues, you know, the brain fog, the joint issues, the just really bad immune system, which is why I'm afraid of COVID. Um, what's going on with me? And trust me, my story is not, <laughs> is, is a very common typical one. Um, I actually got stem cell therapy, fun fact. Um, yeah, I feel I'm a little bit like a science experiment, which is really cool to me. And I was there in treatment with a bunch of other people um, who also had Lyme and, you know, they had such similar stories to me, but there are other people who were diagnosed with MS and are in wheelchairs because MS is often confused with Lyme. And the thing about MS is you can't actually diagnose it. 
uh, it's just kind of like you rule a bunch of things out and people and you are suspected to have MS, fun fact. So a lot of people are diagnosed with MS who actually have Lyme or lupus and they actually have Lyme. Um, but you know, it, it's, it is really hard to diagnose and there is no cure. And the hardest part is the CDC actually does not recognize Lyme as real disease. They say that you can you can cure it with antibiotics, and that's just not true. I was on long-term antibiotics for years, dexamethasone, and <laughs> I still have it. Um, so it's really a frustrating disease more than anything because it can calm down and then it can flare up. So one day I can feel amazing. The next day I feel like I'm at death's door. And that's the really hard part because when you go to work and you tell your, you know, your boss, I can't make it in today, I'm really sick, they say, well, you were fine yesterday. And the very next day, all of a sudden you're better and you go in and they said, well, were you really sick? I promise I was. <laughs> so it's just a really strange disease. And with it affecting the immune system, you know, um, what's scary about it is that it can be passed on to children. Uh, if you are pregnant, you can pass it on to the, the baby, to the fetus. And so I know someone who's had children uh, while, and she has Lyme and one of her kids is literally allergic to light. So they have to get special, you know, um, uh, windows, special light bulbs, everything, because the child is sick. And um, so that's another big fear. And uh, just giving you more backstory on Lyme, I'm on a big rant. <laughs> I appreciate you letting me do my spiel. But, um, you know, there's this quote unquote conspiracy theory. Uh, but actually, I, I go to one of the country's top Lyme specialist, and she actually says it's true that Lyme was actually created as a bioweapon. It's kind of like COVID. Um, you know, there's the theory that, that COVID was created in a lab and that bat or what have you got out, and that's how it spread. Well, that's what they say about Lyme. It was actually during, um, during I believe, Vietnam, and on Plum Island, they were doing science experiments, and they were creating a bioweapon, and one of the ticks got out, and that's where Lyme came out, and it's actually really interesting where you see the, the if you printed out a map of where the most prevalent areas of Lyme are, You'd see the most prevalent areas around Plum Island, of course, and um, it's actually interesting if you print out a, a map of the most prevalent areas of schizophrenia, it's, an exact, it's the exact same image because Lyme affects, uh, affects your brain, causes severe brain fog and anxiety and depression, and that's why I think a lot of people actually have these issues, you know, these mental health issues that just kind of stem off of Jesse's interests um, because actually they have undiagnosed Lyme. You know, I had those issues and uh, since treating my Lyme and actually getting my tonsils out, fun fact, which were chronically infected, I just had no idea. It's called Panda Syndrome. Um, that brought all, a lot of inflammation right next to my brainstem, if you can think about it, where tonsils are, brought it down. And so my depression and anxiety have been brought down. So really just interesting. It's amazing to me how connected the body is and just how little we understand about it. Like, I appreciate what you said about your experience with having your tonsils removed and it affecting your anxiety and depression. Because I think there's so much truth there. I think that so much of what we're experiencing is being affected by areas that we're not even looking at. I mean, I, I think that's true socially, right? I mean, we can, we can go there talking about, you know, Black Lives Matter and our history as Americans. Um, but just even within our bodies of the way that we feel 
being affected by, you know, the, the microbes in the soil under our feet or the size of our tonsils in our throat or something else that just traditional, I'll say traditional Western medicine would say, well, those are completely unrelated. Let's not, let's not contaminate the data by saying that those two things might be correlated. Um, and yet I feel like there's a place for really strict, like differentiation and isolation of symptoms and treatment. But I think there's also a place for this really large scope integration of some really wide factors and lenses. Mm. What's, what has your, I'm, I'm curious because we've kind of run the whole gamut of acupuncture and yeah. oils to, you know, we go to UCSF for neurology and GI and other things. So we're like, both feet in both camps, right? We have two feet in Western medicine and we have two feet in like alternative medicine with Isley. Um, what, what's your, what kind of, how are you relating to that Ariel? Occam's razor. I don't know if you've heard of that, but it's this, basically it's this idea that, you know, all these things, there are all these issues going on, right? What makes sense that you have 62 diagnoses or that one issue is causing all these 62 symptoms? Um, so that was kind of where I landed and I'm so with you. It's that issue between Western medicine and, and, you know, the, the more, um, homeopathic side of things. And I, I have, I've gone to dozens at least of doctors and the vast majority of the Westernized doctors told me that it was all in my head. And that was what hurt the most because I I knew something was wrong. And I'd even been to an infectious disease doctor and he didn't bother to check for Lyme. That was wild to me. Um, But I I literally traveled the country (laughs) looking for the right doctor. And I found one in L.A. who was kind of in between. And he, I'll I'll tell you his name, it's Dr. Dr. Bijan Parat, and he's, incredible in Los Angeles. And um, in addition to Dr. Uzi Rice, also in Los Angeles, and I'm not very fancy, but my sister lives in LA. So that's how we kind of stumbled upon them. But, um, you know, your hormones. What what was the second doctor's name? Yeah, Dr. Uzi, yeah, U-Z-Z-I Rice, R-E-I-S-S. Now he is more hormonal. He works with hormones um, and he's incredible. He's a miracle worker. Um, You know, my, I also have some genetic hormonal issues where, uh, basically he just evened out my hormones and like kind of fixed me. And it's amazing how the hormones can just affect the entire body. But Dr. Bijan Parat is he, um, he's a internist and they're both, um, you know, uh, you know, they're middle Eastern. So they, they, <laughs> I connect very well with them. Um, but, um, they work really well together, even though they're in total different separate practices, they just respect each other. And you don't have many doctors who are willing to work together to find your health. Now, when I sat down with Dr. Parat, he said, okay, tell me your medical history. So I know, okay, but you are familiar with this spiel. You have your spiel. You go through the, okay, here's my, I went through this, that, the other. And I kind of went through my quick 10, 15 minute spiel. And he said, no, 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 stop that. And I kind of paused and I looked at him. He said, start from the very beginning. He asked me, you know, uh, it, when my mom was pregnant with me, when she had me, did she actually go into labor or was it, you know, was it induced or did she just have a planned, uh, scheduled C-section? He started from the very beginning. It took me over two hours to tell my entire medical history. Now, when you find a doctor that actually listens, 
that is a game changer. And I found myself crying and I, I don't cry very easily. So that, <laughs> I was like, what's wrong? What is this moisture coming out of my eyes? <laughs> um, and I didn't realize how much it had affected me, you know, emotionally and just my life, but really laying it out there really brought it to the surface. And he looked at me and he said, I love patients like you because you're interesting. And he said, I am not going to quit until I find out what's wrong with you. I will not quit. And for the first time, I actually believed a doctor when they said that. And he didn't quit until he figured out exactly what was wrong. He did the most comprehensive testing that I've ever experienced. And I've had countless blood draws in my lifetime. But this guy, he made sure that it wasn't duplicate but blood draws. He just wanted to find out what was going on. And he did things like even breath tests to measure the bacteria in my gut. It was amazing. And he wrote this write-up where it explained everything that was wrong with me in an easy to understand way. He says, you know, this is what this means. You have these levels. That's what this means. And it was amazing. He found out what was wrong with me. And he said, we're going to, now we're going to fix you. So, you know, a lot of times doctors just give you the easiest answer that they can possibly think of and so that they can give you the diagnosis and you write your check and you're on your way. But he not only wanted to find out what was wrong with me and actually what's wrong with me, not just the theory, but he wanted to fix me. So it's very rare to find doctors like that, but he's somewhere, like I mentioned, somewhere in between Western medicine and homeopathic. He's going to do what's right for your body, whatever is right, whatever that means. And, but he does love things like, um, if you know what a 10 pass is, it's ozone therapy. So it takes, it's kind of, you are hooked up to an IV and it draws out some blood and goes into this kind of capsule. And inside the capsule is pumped ozone. Think of like the ozone layer. When it rains, that smell, you'll smell that. And you watch your blood and they kind of uh, mix around your blood with the ozone. And you see your red, uh, your blood turn from a dark royal red to ruby bright red. And you actually see it being purified. And they pump it back into you and pull it back out. And they do that 10 times or, or um, you know, hyperbaric chambers and how that can rebuild your actual cell system. And, you know, it, it's interesting that you mentioned that um, your daughter's DNA is changed because Lyme does change DNA, actually. And so it's a matter of if Lyme can change it, why can't we fix it? I don't believe that anything is incurable. I believe that everything is curable, even if we haven't figured it out yet, you know, and even the hard part is what you said, the limited data. Now, Lyme, there isn't limited data. Uh, you know, there's so many people in the U.S. who have Lyme and just a lot of people who are undiagnosed because, as I mentioned, so hard to diagnose. But, you know, I think it's a matter of finding out how to go about it in the best way possible for your body. Like, that's why I did the stem cell therapy. I didn't want to just get pumped up with um, with antibiotics because I just it's detrimental to the body. I think we're over-diagnosed, over diagnosed, over prescribed uh, antibiotics, but yeah. you know, doing something that's actually part of you and putting it back inside of you, that's amazing. Letting your body heal itself. as a success coach when people say that they can't do something does that irk you or do you accept it and move on in a in a way that maybe they'll accept a new lesson because I, I feel like you hear that 
a lot in your industry. Like, oh, I can't do that. I could never do this. Or how is that for you? I usually, that's such a good question because you're so right. <laughs> I hear it. I hear it all the time. And I always laugh. And, you know, my dad um, is older. He's 81 years old. Okay. So I'm working with an 81 year old German man. It's like growing up with Captain Von Trapp. All right. And oh my so, gosh. That, that's a good analogy. <laughs> and so, and so I, I tell those advisors that that's kind of like my, my go-to thing, but it's so true. It's like growing up with Captain Von Trapp and my dad just got his first iPad. Okay, he had <laughs> Wow, to, good for to, him though. Yeah. That's great. To give you an idea, this man has had his um assistant print out every email of his for I mean 20, 30 years, however long, you know, 20 years as long as we've had computers <laughs> and stuff That's having his incredible. own computer. Is that hilarious? It's all been printed out for him. And so he got his first iPad. And so guess who was stuck teaching him how to use said <laughs> iPad? <laughs> I oh, live, that's amazing. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I bought a house about 15 minutes away from my parents to ensure that I was close by in case they needed anything in case of emergency. Apparently, this was an emergency. So <laughs> I was there all the time, you know, just teaching him. But he caught on, you know, and he was able to figure it out. And so when I have advisors telling me, oh, you can't teach a new, uh, an old job, new tricks, I say, hey, listen, I taught Captain Von Trapp how to use an iPad. If I can do that, I can do anything. You know? <laughs> and yeah, and yeah. a lot of them, you know, I, I pr oh, end up proving them wrong. Yeah, it's just taking the time. It's taking the time, breaking it down slowly. And, you know, thank God for my dad, because that taught me patience. You know, him being German, I didn't have patience growing up. So, <laughs> so mm. I learned it. Um, and, and with this role and with, you know, helping him and my mom, you know, she's pretty technologically nuts too. But, um, but yeah, that, you know, just being able to be patient, slow things down, I think, I think with, you know, modern era, everything, just expecting things to happen so quickly, even the older generations are expecting, oh, I have to learn this immediately. No, you don't. You can slow down, take your time, figure it out. What works for you? Just like anything, um, you know, I, 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 I like to indoor skydive. It's my fun little That's hobby. That's awesome. And, um, and I, I, with COVID, I haven't been there at all this year. Um, and which is sad, but, you know, I get frustrated with myself. You know, I, I can't fly head down or anything like that. Like my, my counterparts do, you know, the people training me and they said they really make this great point. My, my trainer, um, instructor Harold says, you know, Ariel, if it were easy to do this, then I wouldn't have a job. And that's so true. You know, that's you a need, great response isn't it? <laughs> it's like, yeah, you're right. I could just jump in the tunnel and do it if it were easy, but no, you need trainers and instructors because it's not just, you're not born with this inherent, um, knowledge of how to do things like breathing. You're just, you just know how to breathe, but, um, but you know, you have to be taught things. Everything has to be taught and learned and no matter the you, age. You know, that's amazing that you say that phrase, everything has to be taught because just last night, I was watching a TED talk from someone who escaped North Korea. I was actually putting together show notes for an earlier episode where that TED talk was mentioned. And so I did my research to watch it myself. And this woman who has escaped North Korea is talking about how when she was living there, she would see people dead on the street and not feel a thing for them, not because she was a psychopath, but because the concept of compassion didn't exist within the culture that she grew up in and she had to be taught compassion 
Yeah. So powerful. And yeah, it blew my mind. Like, you're right. Like, so I, I, I integrate that. I metabolize that as a parent of just the importance of teaching. And, you know, we can get into the whole nature versus nurture discussion, but like, <laughs> I was she literally is, about to say that. <laughs> right. Yeah. But like, she's one example, at least of like, no, there, there is a degree in which, like you just said, Ariel, like everything has to be taught and that's okay. Like we're not lesser than just because we have to be taught kindness or we have to taught how to change our minds when, you know, our view of history is completely wrong or one-sided. Um, it's, it's okay. Like we can be taught and we can learn and like that can be a really gracious space, but it can also be a really disciplinary space, right? Like, I don't know what your childhood experiences were, Ariel, but like, you know, Captain Von Trapp, like he's a pretty strict disciplinarian in, in the film. Um, and so, you know, being taught things didn't always come with grace, but it could. And I think when it does, I don't know, maybe things would be better for us. You know, that's such a good point. Um, I'm obviously, I talk about my parents a lot. I'm very close to them. Um, I think that's probably the Lebanese side. You know, everyone's very, very close. If you've seen my big fat Greek wedding, by the way, that's my family um, <laughs> on the Lebanese side. Um, but then, yeah, I relate things to movies pretty well. <laughs> um, but, you know, even my dad, he, he, with his career, he traveled 200 days a year. So even though he was gone a lot, he was always present. He was always there. But, you know, things, you know, you have to learn things differently. You know, Lebanese is a very affectionate, very affectionate culture. Um, but Germans, as you can, you know, as we've seen, are, you know, more cold, if you will. Um, it just doesn't come as naturally. Uh, that, that, that warmth doesn't come as naturally. But let me note, if you go to Germany, people, they are the most embracing, loving people. They just show it differently. Now, with his, with my dad's marriage, it wasn't until he was in his 60s or 70s um, when he went on a retreat, actually, is I believe it was a Tim Keller retreat, and where he kind of, he, his whole marriage with my mom, um, he was kind of just understanding, well, I'm providing for her, you know, and she's still not fully happy. I'm confused. Like, I'm traveling 200 days a year. I'm doing what I need to do. But when he went on this Tim Keller retreat, he realized, oh, my gosh, like, she wants me to love her and I have to make the decision every single day, make the choice every single morning that I don't just love my wife. I'm in love with my wife. And, you know, you had, he had to teach himself, learn that and teach himself. Okay. This is how I, I, I love my wife. I have to make the decision. People expect feelings to come to them. It's one of those things where you expect like that woman who saw these bodies laying in the, in the middle of the road, you know, you would expect her to just have a feeling of compassion come to her, but she had to learn that, you know, and we expect feelings to come to us naturally. That doesn't happen. We had to learn them. We have to, and we even have to control them. You know, it's funny to me when people say, you know, uh, they get divorced because they fell out of love, you know, well, the thing is you, you, you're letting a, an emotion control you. Wouldn't you rather control your emotions? Wouldn't you rather dictate them? So falling out of love, you know, is, you know, I understand it happens. It definitely happens. But, you know, if you want to be in love with someone, if you want to make something work, you have to make that choice to make it work. You have to make that choice to be not just love someone, but be in love with someone, for instance. Yeah. And that, I think that also speaks to arranged marriages too, where you learn to love your partner. And I'm, I'm not very familiar with that, um, that aspect of other people's cultures, but I do know people that, I went to college with that had arranged marriages and they're very happily married. 
I worked with someone at University of the Pacific who had an arranged marriage at a very young age and uh, was more happily married than a lot of uh, Americans that fell in love and then got married. And she would talk about this marriage as like a learning experience, as something that she got to like unwrap a present almost. And it was discovering who this person was and what to appreciate about them. And and I don't know what it is about cultures that um, have that as a concept of you don't have to be in love necessarily at first, but you can learn to love somebody not as like a forced feeling, not as a forced emotion, but to learn how to appreciate someone that you don't really know and learn what their good qualities are and hold on to those instead of falling out of love because you're just focused on the negative. Yeah. And focusing on the negative, you know, that's such a really good point. So many people focus on that. Like I learned, I, I actually saw this video of this woman. She's a, a, I believe a military wife. And she said, you know, he, her husband lays the wet towel on the bed and stuff like that, but, and it would drive her nuts. But, you know, all of a sudden she changed her mindset. If he doesn't, if the wet towel is on the bed, it means he's there. And I know that's so hard right now during COVID. <laughs> um, so many people are at their spouse's throats, you know, or their significant other's throats just because they're there in the way. Oh my gosh, give me a break. But you know, it's, it's, uh, if you look at it, if you take a step back, this is a beautiful thing because, you know, in what other lifetime will you get to experience, you know, surviving a pandemic with someone, you know, in such close quarters and being able to get to know someone at that deep and intimate of a level. It's not very common that that can happen. It's, it's so true. I, I keep hearing people saying that we're living through times that are going to be in people's textbooks in the future. <laughs> And it's like, that's cool, <laughs> but why this? Why do we have to experience this? I mean, this is better than a war, right? Like I would I would rather live through a pandemic than live through a draft where you have to go to World War III. Uh, but it is a time where you can learn to appreciate the things that you took for granted before. Like I, I don't know what it's like, Caben, for you to be a farmer, but I recently started a community garden here. So I'm a tiny little farmer <laughs> and I have pumpkins and um, squash and tomatoes and stuff like that. And I would never have done that had there not been a pandemic. No, but you're right. This has been such an opportunity. I'm the same way. I have had this back patio with a little garden that I've, I, I moved in my house probably, oh goodness, um, a year ago, maybe a little bit over a year ago. And I haven't touched this back patio garden because I just hate gardening. <laughs> and so I admire you, Caven, a lot. <laughs> and, um, and so this pandemic has forced me out there. You know, you get bored, but also you see these projects and you say, okay, if, I, um, you know, I keep putting things to the side because I don't, quote, unquote, have time or I haven't had, quote, unquote, the opportunity. But this is the time, if any. And so I got into my back patio and I... I now know what dwarf mondo grass is. If you told me a few months ago that I would be excited about receiving and planting dwarf mondo grass, I would have asked you what that was. But what is that? I don't even know what that is. <laughs> it's like a form of monkey grass, basically. And awesome. so, and here I am excited about that, getting my little baby Japanese maple that I named Franklin because I be it became my son. <laughs> 
and, and, and you have to name your plants. That's obvious. Uh, of course you do. And, and meanwhile, I, I have a little, a, a cat and she, I forgot how much she loves the outdoors. So she's rolling in the dirt, you know, she's chewing on the grass and, you know, it didn't make just me happier to go outside and experience a finished patio and see something completed, but it made her happier too. And it made this neighborhood squirrels happy. And you know, it's interesting how these projects that we put off because we just, ugh, we just don't want to do it. You know, it just, the idea of it's miserable it can just bring us such joy once it's completed and, you know, experiencing something that you're just wouldn't usually ever explore can be something really just an escape. And that's our show. Thank you so much for joining this ongoing conversation as we seek to unearth meaning in the everyday stuff of life. For show notes or to connect with this community of seekers, visit us online at www.ofdustanddivinity.com. Join our Facebook group, which is called Of Dust and Divinity Podcast Community, and engage us on Instagram at Of Dust and Divinity, all one word. Hey, and if this conversation was meaningful to you like it was meaningful to me, leave a rating and a review on your favorite streaming platform so that more people just like us can discover this podcast and join the conversation themselves. And don't forget to subscribe. Here is a sneak peek of the next episode. Enjoy. What did you, you were talking about the Me Too movement was one of the things that you brought up. And as someone who is part of that um, unfortunate (laughs) demographic, one of the things that I decided to do was actually confront the person that I was affected by and it gave me a lot of power back. And so instead of just being woe is me and just sad and sorry for myself and whatever the you know feeling was at the time, I don't even remember this was years and years ago, I just decided to take control of it. And even though the conversation didn't go very well, I still have it in my phone as like an anniversary as like this is the day that I had that conversation. A huge thank you to my wife for supporting this passion project and a great big thank you to Michelle Lim of Clementine Brands for all the brand content, including the name of this podcast and the cover art. As you go through your day, remember these words of Rainer Maria Rilke. Be patient toward all that is unsolved in your heart and try to love the questions themselves. Do not seek the answers which cannot be given to you for you would not be able to live them. And the point is, to live everything. Live the questions now.